Good evening, everyone. Hello. How are you all doing? Are you well? All right, um, so thank you very much for joining in on tonight's business acumen webinar. Uh, so today we've got a very, um, a very interesting speaker and a very interesting topic. Uh, so just uh, by way of introduction, uh, so this is um, a man, uh, what is it? A man from my, my neighborhood back in Venda, uh, went to UCT together, very, uh, passionate about the things that he do, uh, which is going to share with you quite briefly. Uh, and um, through this journey, this is something that uh, we've uh, just spoken about in terms of the kind of impact that we want to really achieve with sessions like this. And he said that he will really love to, to be part of it. And I'm sure that the insights that he's going to share tonight, uh, you'll find them very, very interesting and just to, to better understand even the, the the kind of problem that we face or the sources of it uh, from an energy uh, perspective and they will just share with you some of the key uh, information about uh, how this has developed over time and insights in terms of probably how this will be uh, resolved but yeah as you can imagine um, we, we are finding ourselves as a country in a very, very unfamiliar territory. And we are hoping that, yeah, whatever the, the, the impact, uh, whatever the, the outcome will really um, see us uh, coming out as a stronger uh, nation, stronger population, and we'll then do it. We'll then see a better tomorrow than what we are facing today. So without uh, taking quite a lot of time, um, I'm going to hand it over to him. Uh, he's going to go through the, 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 the session with you for the next 60 to 90 minutes. Afterwards, we're then going to have a short break, uh, about 10 to 15. Then Freddie will be jumping in in order to, to just facilitate the, um, the feedback for case study two. And uh, it will be good to just have all of you here just to also share some of the insights. And uh, we'll then wrap up the session by just uh, providing our last minute, say, guidance as we head into the final case study in the program. Uh, so that's, um, that's just it from an introduction perspective. Herbert, you have the floor. Uh, hello everyone, so my name is Herbert, I thought let me show my video for a brief for a moment. Uh, in my line of work uh, with uh, virtual meetings, it is deemed as etiquette if you, if you have the mic to uh, show uh, your video, I will I will discontinue the video in the interest of uh, bandwidth, but yeah, I exist. This is what I look like. 
and so we will go through, uh, I think, give or take 18 slides, and I hope I will uh, make it as interesting for you guys as possible. And uh, if my voice goes soft, please prompt me so I can, uh, I can lift it. Otherwise, I'm going to kill the video now and uh, we will get on to the presentation. I hope you can, uh, you can see the screen or at least on full screen. So a little bit about uh, myself. So I qualified 2013, so almost uh, 10 years now. I did my articles outside of uh, public uh, practice, also known as TOP. So I did not go the auditing route. I did three years at uh, Sasol. I always tell my friends in auditing, you could not pay me enough to, to do auditing. It just is not for me. I am not wired that way. I prefer to make the profit, not to audit somebody else's profit. It's just how I am wired. After the three years, I did five more years in, uh, in Sasol. And during that time, uh, I was modeling uh, oil and gas uh, fields. So uh, when it comes to Excel, I can now do most of the things with my uh, with my eyes closed. I'm no longer Googling what formulas should look like. And after the five years, I moved on to Investec. I had a keen interest uh, in markets. So while I, during my five years in Sasol, um, when I was not as busy, I would be trading on the side. I got bent a few times too many. And a few times I got lucky, made some money, but otherwise, I had always uh, I was always interested in uh, financial markets. So what I do now for a living, I am an equity research analyst. I cover oil and gas, petrochemicals, gold, a few of the industrial names. Long story short, if you were to ask me what I do, and this is how I would explain it to somebody else in grade ten. I develop investment ideas. Sometimes they're good ideas, sometimes great, sometimes not so great. And I go and propose these ideas to clients. We debate them. So one of my very weird personality traits is I don't mind an argument. I like confrontation. My job literally is to be a punching bag for ideas. So if you hate, Confrontation, this is a space you would not be comfortable with. I literally write a report, call it an idea, and I have to go in front of clients, present it, and we debate it. Some clients will tell me that you are being silly or you are being stupid. This does not make sense. Others will say, great idea. I like it. We can make some money. Let's go do so. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. If uh, you are working in any of the big firms in some shape or form, I am exposed to the people that manage your pension. So that's pretty much uh, what, uh, what I do for a living. Now, just by virtue of what I do, I thought I should add this. Everything I'm going to say, not investment advice. I'm not asking you to buy anything or sell anything. This is for educational purposes. 
I just thought I should flag that. It's critical in my line of work to put uh, out disclaimers such as uh, this one. Now, in terms of what we are going to cover, we are going to pretty much cover uh, the story around high fuel and energy costs. The world is going through an energy crisis right now. Our one here in South Africa, for the most part, is self-inflicted, i.e. we shot ourselves in the foot. We could have done better, but the greater planet Earth, if you want, is going through an energy crisis. We'll talk about how that came about and how we fit in that uh, overall narrative. So I thought just as a backdrop, uh, let's start off by talking uh, ESCOM and power. So what you've got there on the left is uh, the amount volume uh, of electricity delivered by ESCOM to residential, i.e. me and you. So you can see we pretty much- Hi Herbert, sorry to just, to just interject here. For, I'm not sure if it's just me only, but I'm still on slide one. Okay, are you still on slide one still? Yes, so maybe I should, is it is it just me or um, colleagues, do you also ha have a similar issue? Oh, oh yeah, now yeah, moving. Still, still on slide one, yes. now is the agenda. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, no, it's moving now, thanks Herbert. So it's not moving in full screen? It it's it's we can see the ones from it's not showing as a slideshow. I can okay. see the the screens on on my end, the number of screens, and then I can also see the one that you're currently showing. All right. Are you what are you seeing right now? I'm seeing the agenda. Power uh, sold. Power sold versus charge. price. Okay. And right now, is it moving or still not moving? Did you move? No, it's still on that same one. Um, try moving again. Yeah, now it's moving. Unpacking high fuel. Okay, it's moving now. Okay, that is weird. Let's see if we can quickly correct that. Right, thanks. Okay. Let's see. Tell me. A hundred percent. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Okay. On the left, what are, what am I trying to communicate with this slide? Okay. Starting with the first chart, pretty much we picked in 2018 in terms of what ESCOM was delivering for electricity to the residential. So this is not focusing on electricity delivered to business, but to residential. But if you look at the, the blue line, the tariff prices have been going up. If I were to summarize that in two points, you are paying more for less. It is it just what it is. Electricity last year, I think increased by around 18%. We now just penciled another 10%. So give or take, if we're to compound it, closer to 25% but you actually are getting lesser electricity. Just so happens to be the case with ESCOM. On the diesel and petrol side, or rather the fuel side of things, a little more complex, but because of Russia, Ukraine, the sanctions, OPEC not making the investments, diesel, petrol, 
uh, a lot more expensive. If it were up to other people, we would all be driving Teslas now, i.e. electric vehicles, but we are not there yet. And as a result, diesel and petrol have pretty much hit new highs in South Africa. So those are the kind of things we are going to cover. We'll try and understand why we are at, uh, at this place right now. So starting off with the bigger picture, energy. Where does the world get its energy? So 82% of our energy mix is from coal, oil, and gas. That is what powers the world. We would want it to be renewables, but as you can see, we are still quite behind with regards to that target or ambition. And this narrative of high energy costs, it is not a South African problem, it's a global problem. If anything, some parts of the world are now experiencing load shedding for the first time in a very long time. They are having to get used to that. For Europe, it is said to be going to be very tough this winter because gas is not as available. Russia has cut them off. They said, you sanctioned me. You kicked me out of the financial system. My way of retaliation is I will cut off the gas. So Europe as a whole relied give or take on plus minus 60% Russian gas. So with that not available anymore, gas prices jumped from around on average, past decade, we're looking at $8 per MMBTU. So you may ask, what is MMBTU? Million British thermal units. It's just a, it's just a unit of measure for gas. So overall, you're pretty much still reliant on coal, oil, and gas. And for this presentation purpose, we are going to zone in on coal, oil, and gas, and we'll spend a whole lot more time just looking at uh, oil and gas and how you end up paying what you pay at, uh, uh, at the pump. So starting off with uh, coal. Coal is quite dirty. So when it comes to burning coal, you end up with a whole lot of emissions. I, as I mentioned, I worked for Sasol. I don't know how many of you have been to Secunda the air smells different on that side. And that is because most of our coal mines in South Africa are in the, let's call it Mpumalanga province. So air smells very, very different. And given that there was this ambition driven mostly by the developed countries, let's move away from coal. Gas is a bit more acceptable, but if we were to have it our way, we want 100% renewable energy. That meant most of the miners stopped investing in new, uh, new reserves. And that means coal availability dropped. And on the back of that, now that uh, Russian gas is not available, the rest of Europe is trying to bring back coal uh, stations that they have switched off. And unfortunately, coal is not as available. And just to note your top three producers, China, almost half the coal produced there. They use a lot of it in, uh, to produce steel. You've got India, you've got US, but most of your production is sitting uh, with China. I hope you are aware. China has, is stuck in, let's call it somewhere between level three to level five lockdown equivalent. COVID is still a real issue in, uh, in China. 
I also thought I should show you an idea, show you an idea of where prices are. Let's say for the past 10 years, prices were around the, let's call it a 50 to $100 per ton mark. Right now you're looking at plus $300 per ton. So also this should uh, begin to uh, give you an idea of why electricity prices for ESCOM are going up. That means at some point you were pay, ESCOM was paying, let's call it uh, $70 a ton. Today it's $300 a ton. Someone has to absorb that cost. To a certain extent, government may subsidize, but eventually you and I, the consumer, has to actually uh, pay, uh, pay that uh, cost. Now on the gas side, it's a bit tricky. So in the same way, you can go to pick and pay and buy a bag of uh, briskets or coal uh, for your braai if you want. That's how easy it is to transport coal. Gas on the other side, not so much. If you want gas, you go buy a cylinder. That's a small quantity, that's for your house. Now, if you want gas for industrial use, it is actually quite difficult. The way gas moves around, using the US as an example, that for the most extensive pipeline, Europe as well, you pretty much in the same way you uh, open up your tap in your house and uh, you get water, that's how they get gas. But now if I want to move the gas from the US to Japan, I go the LNG route. What is LNG? Liquefied natural gas. Long story short, I take the gas, turn it into a liquid, put it in a fancy cylinder where I control pressure, I control temperature, ship it, and when I receive it on the other side of the ocean, I take the liquid, regasify it, and put it into the pipeline. That is a very expensive process. So let's put some numbers into it. The same gas that goes for $3 MMBTU in the US, by the time it goes through the LNG process, when it arrives to the customer on the other side, the cost has increased fivefold. It will go anywhere between 10 to $15 per MMBTU. That is how expensive the LNG process makes, uh, uh, pretty much makes gas. South Africa is keen to try and get some gas in. Uh, sooner or later, you're going to be hearing a whole lot of LNG stories. Now, Russia is a top three producer when it comes to gas. So if you are going to sanction Russia, you are going to upset the gas market. Europe is, is pretty much getting the short end of that stick because of their high dependency on uh, Russian gas. Now, oil. So oil, I think uh, a bit easier to process uh, relative to gas with oil, easy to move around. If you give me 10 liters, 20 liters, I don't know if you've ever been stuck with your car by the side of the road because you ran out of petrol, you take whatever container you get next nearest garage, you can fill it up. In, this, in that very same manner, it's how you move oil around. It is not as difficult as moving gas around. And just to throw some numbers for you guys, so globally, on a daily basis, the world consumes plus minus 100 million barrels a day. That is a big number. 
South Africa is give or take 500 to 600,000 barrels a day that we consume with our going up and down. So oil is pretty much your largest commodity in terms of value globally. So if you want to calculate that value, it's pretty much 100 million barrels times, let's call it $92 per barrel, which I think is the oil price today. And you can plug in what 1770, you will get a feel of how big that number in terms of value it looks like daily. So in terms of power generation and oil, guys normally use a, or rather at an industrial scale, it's mostly diesel. Daily petrol, you and I can buy petrol generators granted, but at an industrial scale, you're looking at diesel and uh, gas oil, but pretty much it's the distillates. Locally, we know that ESCOM burns a lot of diesel. I don't know if you guys uh, listened to any of the calls over the weekend. ESCOM had budgeted 7 billion rent for the whole year for diesel. They went through that in six months. Now all they've got left is around uh, 500 million rand. I think Treasury will probably increase that allocation. And it's unfortunate that now as we, as the Northern Hemisphere, i.e. Europe, US is going into winter, they'll be looking for diesel also to burn for power generation. We will be competing with them in that very same market. So there's some demand that's going to uh, come through. We will talk refining a bit later, but for all of the three uh, commodities that I have mentioned, there is a one similar narrative for the both of them. So it's coal, oil, and gas. They are all fossil fuels, non-renewable, and most of the policy reform, actually all of it has been to move away from fossil fuels. So coal being the worst lot of them, then uh, you pretty much have oil, then gas. The idea is we want renewable energy and we need to move away from fossil fuels because we are polluting the earth. We only have one earth that we need to correct this. All of that has led to underinvestment in all the three commodities. And right now, when we need, when we need it most, it is unavailable. There's gonna be a whole lot of load shedding. So you, if you say you are leaving South Africa because load shedding, guess what? If you go to Europe, you're gonna come across some. If you're gonna go to the US, you're gonna come across some. You go to Australia, you're gonna come across some. So all of a sudden load shedding does not look like it's unique to South Africa. It is everywhere. There is an energy crisis right now. So with this slide, I thought I should give you an idea of what uh, oil and gas and cool cost in terms of uh, energy equivalent. So expressed in a dollar per MMBTU. So you can see uh, EU gas sticking out there. So let's, let me try and paint uh, the global gas market for you. Um, the most expensive market right now is uh, the EU market in terms of gas. So Europe, and that's because of the Russia-Ukraine war, normally gas prices, they were around $8. Now it's north of $60. So that is quite a big jump. In the US, it should be around two, maybe $3. Now you're looking at $9. So those are big moves. And if we start thinking coal, 
that should be normally, let's call it 100, no, 50 to $100 per ton. You're looking at north of 300. Oil, depending on who you talk to, others will tell you we should be around 60. We are north of $90. So all the commodities that we need for energy have pretty much jumped significantly. And hence the energy bills are also beginning to reflect, uh, to reflect that uh, narrative. So I did mention that our global uh, consumption oil is around 100 million barrels per day. South Africa is, is around 500 to 600. And in terms of consumption, the big guys, US is 20%. So of that 100 million barrels a day, give or take 19 to, 19 to 20 is uh, the US. You've got China 14 to 15 and so on and so on. So one of the key narratives that have that came up when I oil went all the way to 120, 125 was guys, price is too high. We may see some demand destruction. The data actually suggests otherwise. That if, for you to see demand destruction, you pretty much need to go all the way back to the 80s. And I'm talking to the chart bottom right. So for the most part, if you say you don't want oil or you want to use oil, what are, what are you actually going to use? You have no alternative. What are you going to put into your car? Maybe you've got a Tesla, you can do that, but you are, if you look at the data, you are the exception today. If you look at the number of EVs compared to ICE, so what is ICE? Internal combustion engine, that's your petrol, diesel, engine cars, EV, electronic vehicle. So. Oil demand very elastic, and I'll show you later that yes, for most people, when I say oil, you are thinking your cars, but oil goes much, much further than that. If you just look around, if you are in the room you are in, if you look closely enough, you would come up with uh, quite a lot of items that are derived from a barrel of oil. So I mentioned China is still in some lockdown of sorts. So it's also holding back some uh, quite a decent chunk of demand. 1.5 million barrels per day. If we look at it against that 100 million barrels a day, that means it's 1.5% demand. 1.5% may sound pedestrian, but in the oil world, it is a significant, uh, it's a significant number. Now, in terms of, uh, we'll get back to this picture. Uh, in terms of a barrel of oil, what can you get from a barrel of oil? So what's a barrel? A barrel is 152 liters. So from 152 liters, give or take half of it from a typical barrel is petrol. So you can get enough petrol, Americans call petrol gasoline, to drive 450 kilometers. Enough diesel to push a truck around for, or rather drive a truck for 65 kilometers. We can, uh, we can do 70 kilowatts of electricity kilowatt hours. So just to also give you some context, uh, a typical household in South Africa consumes 35 kilowatt hours. So that's almost two days worth of electricity for a household from a barrel of oil. Uh, you're looking at a almost two kg of charcoal briquettes for your braai. Key messaging here is oil is not as uh, easy to replace as people make it sound to be. Clothes, polyester, that's also from a barrel of oil. There's a whole lot more you get from oil than 
merely driving your car around. So what I've skipped here, we'll touch on a bit later. This explains South Africa's fuel price, but we'll get back to that. On the supply side, I think this is for this should explain much of the problems that we are seeing right now, both for coal, oil, and gas as well. So reserves peaked in 2018-2019. So what are reserves? The reserves are pretty much uh, what we can produce given the price today, given the technology we have today. And top right, that capex, you can see it's been declining from 2014. That is a reflection of the investment in new infrastructure, in new exploration to pretty much build up reserves. So that started coming off. What happened in 2014? Long story short, that is when US uh, shale came into the picture. We ended up with oil crashing as low as I think around $30 per barrel. And when the commodity is low, it deters investment. So for the last, uh, let's call it six years, oil prices were somewhat artificially low because we had unprofitable barrels in the form of shale flooding the market that kept prices low, but unfortunately that meant a lot of oil and gas companies stopped investing. And as a result, uh, reserves did not grow. And also on the back of that, that meant spare capacity declined right now, which is estimated at 2.1, probably a bit lower. And in terms of the superpowers who produces oil, so you've got, um, You've got OPEC at give or take 30 million barrels a day. I think right now they're probably producing 28, 29. You've got Russia at 10, 11, US 12, 30, pretty much. That's give or take half of, uh, um, half of that 100 million barrels a day. So Iran was sanctioned by Trump. So that was politics, oil very political. They are saying, well, we can bring in an additional 1 million barrels a day if you remove the sanctions. That would go a long way to pull this oil price down. But of course, they are saying, well, wait a minute, you sanctioned me. If I sign this nuclear deal and Biden, I have to deal with a different president, what stops him from kicking me out? I need a, bit, a little bit more assurance before I sign and try and... Uh, reconfigure my economy for this uh, world without sanctions. I'm not jumping head in. I need a little more assurance. Now, on the Russia side of things, it's quite tricky. So Russia is 10% of global supply. So of that 100 million, you're looking at 10 million barrels. Of the 10, they export five. And to add to that, they also export an additional 3 million barrels a day. That's in the form of petrol and diesel. We'll talk about that. And overall, since uh, the lockdowns, so 2020, April to June, you could argue the world was in a level five lockdown globally. And when we reopened, we reopened, demand was quite aggressive that we started drawing down on crude oil inventories. And now we are at a place where we are below the five-year average. To try and improve things, uh, if you are a president in the US and people start complaining, I'm paying too much for petrol, it's not good for your, 
for your career, especially if you have any aspirations of getting re-elected. So Biden decided, okay, I am the US, I have a lot of inventory, I am going to draw down 180 million barrels a day to try and lower down this, uh, uh, to, lo to lower this oil price. So give or take has been creating artificial supply because the US government is not a supplier of crude oil. So I'm calling this artificial in that sense, is added 1 million barrels a day into the market that at some point has to end. Uh, I think more recent is added 10 million barrels to it. So again, there is a case that uh, supply could be reduced when the SPR, what is SPR? Strategic Petroleum Reserve, when that SPR ends. So this is my way of trying to summarize everything I've said and how this could affect the oil price. So, on the demand side of things, demand could increase if China, if China reopens. By reopen, we mean all the COVID lockdowns come to an end. In the same way that when lockdowns ended here, we started driving again, that creates demand. The second point is around diesel, uh, diesel power generation, uh, so diesel for power generation in the EU. So. Europe is going into winter in the same way ESCOM is able to burn diesel to generate power. They are looking to burn a whole lot of diesel to supplement uh, their power needs since Russia has cut them out in terms of uh, gas. So that will be additional demand. And what can reduce demand here is, I'm sure you've, uh, you've heard stories of a recession or slowdown. If you go back to 2008-2009, demand that was lost was around 5%. So you could argue maybe something similar or perhaps worse, but I just thought I should reflect that. On the supply side, we mentioned uh, the Iran nuclear deal. If they agree, you could have an additional plus minus a million barrels a day. Or potentially if Russia, Ukraine agree, we've had it. Uh, no one is winning with this war. Let's come to whatever arrangement agreement that all the sanctions on Russian exports, that means you could potentially have uh, 5 million barrels uh, come into the market. And I want to qualify that because even at this stage, someone is taking Russian barrels. They did not go to zero. There will always be someone willing to, to take uh, the barrels from you. And in terms of what can reduce supply, already I mentioned the SPR release. You do have low inventory levels. There is uh, the NATO, US, they are looking to increase the sanctions uh, on Russia and the overall narrative of lack of investment and declining spare capacity. And the other one is whether I really sympathize with KZN. If you caught uh, the news, they are saying the rains are coming back. We are in La Nina. This is in, in, uh, in the US from uh, June to December, it's a hurricane season. So that Gulf Coast is where most of their capacity is and a weather event could easily knock off some of the capacity in the US. And again, for reference purposes, US is give or take 12 to 13% of global supply. Now I am slowly shifting into refining or rather just getting into it. 
So what is refining? So the oil that uh, companies mine from the ground, it is literally goo, it's black goo, if you want. If you try and put that in your car, it won't run. So the process of refining is to take that uh, oil that they got from the ground and that's from it extract petrol, diesel, and all the other useful things that we mentioned earlier that you get from uh, refining oil. And the profit that you make from refining process is referred to as a refining margin. And just closer to home, let's uh, paint this. So we've got six refineries in South Africa. So uh, you've got two synthetic ones. Why am I calling them synthetic? It's because they're not traditional refineries. So that is uh, Petrosa and Secunda. For Secunda, it's coal in, petrol diesel out. For Petrosa, it's gas in, petrol diesel out. For the other four, they're traditional refineries. So that's your Natref, NREF, Subref, Ultron. And uh, actually the last one is not coming to mind. But long story short, two of our six refineries are operational. And this is a, not just a South African trend, it's a global trend. So because we all have aspirations to be driving electric vehicles, pretty much there's been limited or very little uh, investment into refining capacity. And those that have refineries are in other cases just choosing to shut it down or rather convert it into an import terminal. So instead of say, um, importing raw crude oil to refine, you've got jobs attached to that. You go, actually, I'm not going to do this. I'm in South Africa, I want electricity. I don't even have the electricity. So I am now just going to buy diesel and petrol uh, or import diesel petrol and I will uh, resell that uh, here locally. It's, it is the trend, but on the back of that, that also means that even if the companies were to make the investments to get uh, oil and oil and get oil from the ground. We've got uh, we've got a bottleneck in terms of refining capacity. That means they they are making super profits right now, but at your expense, you are paying a significant premium on diesel and petrol because of refining uh, limited refining capacity. So I'm going to introduce uh, the concept of a crack spread. So as a simple example, if crude oil Brent costs $100 per barrel, and we say the diesel crack spread is $50 per barrel, then a barrel of diesel is $150, quite simple. So if you want, it is the profit I get from taking crude oil, crude oil and converting it into diesel. Others will refer to it as a refining margin, but the industry terminology is crack spread. Now the diesel crack spread past decade averaged 15 to $17 per barrel. Today it's trading at more than $50 per barrel. Petrol averaged eight to 10. Today is trading 11.15, but I checked uh, this, uh, this afternoon, petrol is actually around $5. I'll explain what's happening there. So why is diesel trading higher and petrol lower? Uh, the most recent uh, 
price revisions or price decrease for petrol and diesel. If I recall correctly, petrol declined by around two rents per liter. Diesel managed, I think, around 30 cents. So what's happening? So because of the need to generate power from diesel, you now have a situation where the diesel crack spread has exploded because guys want more diesel. Everyone is thinking winter is coming and I'm referring to uh, Northern Hemisphere. They need it for, diesel, for power generation. So they are buying up diesel. So demand for diesel is a lot higher. Hence the price of diesel is not coming down at the same rate compared to that of uh, petrol. And that means if you are ESCOM, you should be worried that now you need diesel to make sure you get us, uh, I think right now it's stage five. And now you have to be competing for diesel with the, with the rest of Europe and, uh, and the Americans. On the petrol side, uh, we are at the end of driving season in the Northern Hemisphere. So for the Americans, when summer comes, they get very excited. We are going for road trips. And the other thing to flag here is when you refine one barrel of uh, one barrel of oil, you get uh, 75 liters of petrol, but you only get give or take 35 liters of diesel. Now, if I'm a refinery and I see people are looking for diesel, I am going to try and produce as much diesel as possible. Now that creates a bit of a problem that petrol becomes a byproduct to produce, let's call it um, 70 liters of diesel. I end up with almost 140 liters of petrol that I don't want. So put simply, petrol is in oversupply while diesel is pretty much uh, in shortage. Hence petrol price is coming off a lot faster than diesel. Okay, before we get to that, uh, let us come back to this picture. Basic fuel price formula. So this is, uh, this is how the price is determined in terms of what you pay when you go to engine, shell, sasol, whatever, whatever your choice or convenience is. So excluding taxes. So you know you pay a whole lot in taxes, but if we leave the tax out, the price you pay is an import parity price. In a simple sense, it is the price of crude plus the crack spread. So if we take diesel, it will be that, let's call it $50 per barrel, Brent crude 92, and plus the logistics to bring it to South Africa. The reference regions are pretty much highlighted in the map. If we were talking petrol, it would be 50% Mediterranean. When I look at Mediterranean, it's Europe. Let's let's uh, let's rather say Europe plus 50% Singapore plus the price to bring it back, and of course there will be an FX or exchange rate component. That is what the basic fuel price formula is. It uh, the numbers are published by the Department of Energy, so you can actually go there to the site to actually uh, observe uh, observe the numbers if uh, that uh, interests you. Otherwise, in a nutshell, that is what I have uh, prepared. On the energy side locally, now this speaks more to uh, what we are seeing with ESCOM. 
you know that it's a story of not maintaining our fleet of uh, coal stations. And on top of that, they are old and they are beginning to break down a lot faster than we can, uh, we can fix them. And also for our desired utopia of renewables, apparently we need 120 billion rand, not for new plants, just to fix the transmission lines. So our renewable energy potential is in the, in the Cape. And at this stage, our grid is designed to take power from, let's call it the North, Mpumalanga, Limpopo, and take it to Gauteng and say the Cape. But unfortunately, if we want to go renewable, we need to reconfigure the grid such that we can take power all the way from the Cape up to the north. So that is uh, one of the challenges, uh, uh, one of the challenges that we've got. And also from a pricing perspective, we mentioned coal is a lot more expensive than it was a year or two back. And then also if you're using the diesel generators, right now you are paying a whole lot more for diesel. The crack spread is almost $40 higher than average. And then on top of that, you've got a significantly weaker exchange rate. So I am going to stop there. In a nutshell, that's uh, how we are here. I am keen uh, for questions and uh, any thoughts from you guys. So go for it. Hello. Hello. Yeah, happy to hear me. Yes. Yeah, it's here. Uh, I just want to ask, uh, South Africa, did we ever had reserves or what happened to our, our reserves? Do we, or do we still have reserves? Uh, I saw you present the artificial supply. Maybe we could be getting some of that too. Do we have any reserves? So at some point we did have reserves but we gave them away for free. And when we say free, we sold literally at the bottom of the market. Other countries tend to use their reserves in periods of crisis. We were reckless in how we approached our, the use of our reserves. We emptied our reserves and there's never been a story of trying to refill those reserves. So at this stage, we do not have reserves. That's why I think at some point we, there was a diesel crisis in the country. I don't know if you are aware, everyone else that was holding some diesel, ESCOM was knocking on their door and said, listen, I need diesel. And uh, every now and then that comes up. And also from the call over the weekend, uh, ESCOM was saying, guys, I'm at around 30, maybe 32% diesel reserves. And this is a company where that uh, or organization that at time goes through 9 million liters a day to keep the lights on. Okay. So as a country, we don't have reserves at this stage. Okay. Otherwise, I think uh, uh, Cyril would have tried to score some brownie points or the ANC and say we are doing our bit to uh, try and uh, ease the pain at the pump. We don't have any. Okay, I guess we're in for the rice right then. 
I hope you are wrong, but it looks like the trajectory. Going once, twice. Hi. I'm sorry for interjecting. Just a quick question with regards to the sites where we can do research on all these things. Are you able to also edit on the slides or edit on something so that we can also go and verify some of the facts? Uh, pretty much on the presentation itself, you will find the sources the data that some of the data may be a challenge in terms of coming across pretty much the prices but uh for pretty much most of the data if you go to eia it's free you will find it uh, department of energy south africa you will find it where where i took shortcuts and uh, using the slide you're looking at where you see bloomberg that is where it may be a bit of a challenge, but there are workarounds that will may just be a lot slower. For example, to build up that CAPEX chart, you may have 200 companies in there. So to be able to literally reconstruct it, you need to be willing to look at 20 years worth of financials for 200 companies. But otherwise you can recreate, you can recreate most of these. Okay, thanks. Hello? Yeah, go for it. Yes. Tell me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I had some talks that um, our, our government is, is actually opening up the, the bidding process on, on some of these, I think there's one in Devon. So I just wanted to, to find out what, what could have been the, 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 the reason for, for them not being operational and and what is what is the what is the strategy for them bidding it you know is are they looking for investors okay uh i don't know if it's just me i missed bits and pieces you are saying they're bidding for i i think they're opening up for the the bidding process for 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 for, for investors to carries basically they're selling them out so I just wanted to check what could have been, what went wrong from the government side for, for, for us to find ourselves having not to have all of them being operational, you know, and now they open. Are you referring to the refineries? In, in the process. Are you referring to the refineries? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. Yes. So let's start off with the one in Cape Town. So it is owned by Glencore. There was an explosion in 2020. And at that point, refining margins went sexy. So Glencore went, why should I bother? But they are now fixing it. They are, when you look at diesel trading at uh, $50 per barrel and not the, 12, the $15, $17 per barrel, 
it's a compelling case. Uh, my sources, actually not even my sources, if you go on Glencore, they'll tell you it is, it is likely to be operational uh, around uh, October. And literally that is just them being, seeing an opportunity to make some good money. Say, so wait a minute, refining margins have exploded. Let's take advantage of this. Now, the other, the big reason behind most of the conversions are decommissionings, uh, excluding Petrosa. With Petrosa, I said it's gas in, fuel out. There, they've run out of gas. But pretty much, I don't know if you are, you've heard of the legislation referred to as clean fuels too. Long story short, the fuel quality we get from our refineries is lagging. It's not just us, that you've got other older refineries in the world where the quality of fuel just is no longer okay. compliant. And that has deterred investment because our fuel price does not enable, at least uh, in its current form, our fuel price formula will not allow them to recover the investment uh, that they will make to upgrade the refineries. If anything, government came out and said, we will delay clean fuels too. And they're trying to rather create some longevity in those that are still willing to keep, uh, to keep operating. Then you add the electricity challenge. Refining is energy intensive. If you don't have a consistent supply of electricity, it is not worth it. So there are a couple of challenges in there, but the big one is clean fuels too. And so just to put something, some, uh, just to give more color onto that. So a typical BMW in South Africa, our service interval, I think is 20,000 kilometers. If you go to Germany, it's 30,000. Why? They've got better fuel. Your engine in South Africa needs frequent cleaning. Hence you have to go to, so you have to take it for servicing a lot more. Uh, the frequency of the services is a lot uh, shorter, if I can put it that way. For them, for, uh, for them, they actually do 30,000 kilometers, then take it for service. We actually do 20,000 kilometers and it speaks to the fuel quality. I hope that answers the question. No, definitely. Thank you. Okay. Hi, Herbert. Hi. Yes, so I just sent a message um, in the chat, but that's fine. So I wanted to ask if it's really that difficult, like for South Africa to maybe try and cut supply from other places, um, just considering like the cost benefit of everything now that load shading is even affecting like our water grids, our water supply and all of that in a lot of places. I know, for example, um, some places in Joburg have been affected. And I also know that in Durban, because of the floods, they had to like stop the load shading for a while because it was affecting the grids and all of that. And I think now they've fixed the water, the water situation. 
but now we're back to load shedding. So maybe that might also affect us even more, um, maybe like affect the water, the water system as well. Um, then we still have to fix those things, which is going to cost us more while we're still trying to figure out the electricity issue. So it's a it's more a political question, but I think it's also important to flag that no country can exist as an island. You will import, you will export. We get water from Lesotho. By the way, we also get power from uh, uh, from other countries as well. And yes, we also export power as well. I will use the example of Botswana. To my knowledge, we don't even export more than a thousand megawatts. That would be the equivalent of stage one load shedding, if you like. I don't think it's worth it to piss off your neighbors for less than stage one volumes. That's just me, not worth it. You need them. There are also a sense of security. And yes, you may be looking at it from a maybe we could reduce the impact on electricity, but there's something that they provide you as well. So mm -hmm. it's not as straightforward in the same way a poor country will probably still donate some money to another country elsewhere. And we probably also receive aid from another country elsewhere. So I don't think it's not, it's as straightforward as well. Maybe if I stop exporting some of the electricity by the way you have a contract in place so someone else will also take you to for arbitration as a country and it will have consequences so i don't think it is uh, as easy as let's just cut them off yes you can declare first measure and all of those and probably wiggle through some of the contracts but it normally then you are you'll be perceived as a country that does not do business in good faith so I don't think it would be worth it for us as a country to go that route. Thank you. Yeah, but um, oh, sure if I can. <clears throat> Hello. Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, softly, but okay. uh, can I'm gonna try and speak up. Can you hear? Much me? better. All right. So I'm not sure if I'm also like uh, diverting or deviating from the topic, but it's on the ESCOM part. Uh, I think from my little understanding, we have um, we've been having load shading, I think, for the past 14 years, if I'm not in, uh, if I'm correct. And um, <clears throat> the reason that they've been giving us all these years is that we have aging infrastructure, and that's the reason why we keep having the the load shading. My question is, maybe you won't even, I don't know, maybe, but you'll answer me. Um, <clears throat> if if it's aging infrastructure. Why are we not replacing instead of fixing? Is it a very expensive process to do? Is there no political will to do that? And why aren't we fixing? Because for me, it's like maybe we disconnect one of the power stations, even if it's not for forever, maybe for a month. We replace all the old aging infrastructure there. Maybe even if it takes us six months, we just do that. But then when we reconnect that thing, we know we have 20 years, 15 years of worth of supplying electricity without having to worry about load shedding. Whilst we're busy fixing the others, we can live with the, uh, we can live with load shedding when you're switching off one and then fixing it and making sure that it's a permanent solution. And then after a year or three or four years, we should be having a fully functional grid 
why isn't that happening? Is there a problem with our politics or policy or whatever? Why, why are we? Why, why don't we have that? And then <clears throat> the other thing is this: could the reason be because there's also these conspiracy theories or people speaking out there and saying um, ESCOM is meant to fail so that it can be privatized? You know, when you start seeing things like the independent power producers being the talk of the day. Uh, not to say that they are wrong. I mean, they should be coming in. We need them because at the moment we have the crisis. But when you look at those things becoming more pressed to say they need to come live, you start to think that maybe the conspiracy theories were actually true. Uh, I know it's not a, a, a right thing to conclude that they are true, but you can see it's moving in that. So maybe you can also maybe clarify if those are actually lies or, you know, Actually, there, is, there could be that plot. I'm not saying there is, but there could be that plot to say we want to um, uh, uh, privatize ESCOM. That's why it's meant to fail. Because from, from my thinking, if you have a problem, you don't come up with uh, a temporary solution. So you need to come up with permanent solutions. And I mean, fixing one station at a time, making sure that it's fully functional, eventually in the long run, we're going to have a fully functional country. So my question is, is there a problem there in terms of doing that? Is it that expensive? Is there political problems there? What could be the issue? And are these um, conspiracy theories that we're hearing on the streets really true or they just lies? Okay, Thank that's uh, loaded, but we'll try and uh, unpack it. I think as a starting point, I'll throw some numbers and feel free to go verify them on uh, ESCOM's website. So the total capacity installed, so this is nameplate, this is not what is able to operate. We've got 40,000 megawatts of installed capacity in South Africa, and I'm not even counting the IPPs at all. Our, on our hottest summer day, we, are, we need give or take uh, 30,000 megawatts. So I said we've got installed, give or take 40. On our coldest winter, we need 36. And again, I am not including imports. So when you begin to think of it that way, from an installed capacity perspective, we have enough capacity. But because the coal stations are too old, they don't run reliably, you get breakdowns. But in the same vein, you can look at Sasol and say, wait a minute, uh, Sasol is, old, Sekunda is very old, but it functions. And that is because there is capital that you can actually see being expended in maintenance. Sasol is spending give or take 20 billion rand a year religiously to keep Sekunda going. If you go look at uh, ESCOM's maintenance numbers, you would expect what we are seeing right now. It is very erratic, not consistent. If anything, the older we, the older the stations, we are actually expecting that number to be growing. ESCOM's number is inconsistent. Now you mentioned building new stations. 
We tried, but it proved dis disastrous. Kosile and Medube are new, but there are design issues. We are not getting what the nameplate there. And then another attempt, and I think it's coming back. It's what Jacob Zuma tried, whether good intentions or not. He came out and said, guys, we need nuclear. I think a great idea, but we were all worried about who's gonna eat, who's not gonna eat. But the idea in itself, there is merit. If anything, the rest of the world is now realizing that actually nuclear is the future. So we have tried in terms of sabotage or trying to privatize and political will. For political will, I think South Africa has many low hanging fruits or many things we can do to improve our doctors conclude she probably has a virus that just needs to run its course. She's seen so many doctors. Okay. I think there's somebody else watching something else as well. But anyway. So South Africa has many initiatives that we can execute to improve our, our economy. And it comes down to political will. You could argue, and I'm just using a parallel, agriculture, we have the soil, we have the climate. Why do we import food? Why? It just does not add up. On power as well, we could do better. But again, also with uh, IPPs or just power in itself, other countries. So I'm amongst the few privileged South Africans that are able to have backup power. Why is ESCOM looking to punish me for doing that? I should be getting high fives from ESCOM, not them threatening to increase my bill because I'm now paying them less. Yes, I am one small person, one small household, but the more you incentivize it, you reduce pressure on the grid. So I'm reluctant to go deeper on the political side of things, but you are right. For the most part, it's political will. The initiatives are there, the plans are there. Most of our policies look great on paper. We go, we fail dismally when it comes to execution. And this time, unfortunately, we are looking at ESCOM that is so important that if it collapses, the small businesses are gone. The few big businesses that can make a plan maybe remain but the jobs are gone, the economy collapses. The amount of time you're spending trying to go to work because of traffic, it has a cost on the economy. So that is my lighter version of trying to answer that, but we have tried to build this station. So I hope that answered the question somewhat. Thank you, Herbert. Okay, I see there is a question about 
investors coming to build a refinery in Namibia? So, one way to think of it, or one way to think of it is the country's policy. So the US has less than half the refineries compared to 30 years back. What has happened, guys are decommissioning and they're saying, well, Biden, your way to the White House, i.e. your electioneering was, you're gonna make America greener. And to do that, you need to shut down some of the refineries or make the operating environment difficult. Now, if you offer the right incentives as a country, tax breaks, subsidies, you name it, people will come. Capital will always go where it's rewarded the most. So if Namibia is thinking, wait a minute, I may have found one of the largest discoveries in terms of oil, I want to beneficiate in country, then you incentivize. If you tell Shell Total and say, come through, I will give you, and I'm just throwing ridiculous numbers here. I'll give you 500% of CapEx as a tax break. Why not? I will guarantee you that you can operate for the next 20 years, 30 years under these conditions and so on and so on. Capital will come flooding. But I think a secondary consideration today is if you are a listed company and you are perceived to be moving away from the green agenda, you will be penalized. ESG is very real. It is picking up momentum. So you need to be willing and willing, and you need to be willing and comfortable to actually go that route. Also, the banks will find it even more challenging to provide funding to initiatives that are not in line with the green agenda. Uh, I think Zanelle says, what can we expect as a country in the short term if the energy situation worsens? So I'll repeat what uh, Andre Dereta and them said. So we moved from stage six to stage five. For South Africa, the ugly would be stage eight. So what happens at stage eight? So stage six, they are turning out, they, they switch off or load shed region, and not regions, let's call it uh, suburbs. At stage eight, it's load shedding at a provincial level. Otherwise, we have a total blackout, and apparently it will take two weeks to reboot. So that means if you have, uh, think on a personal note, if you have food, that means forget buying food, uh, that you, uh, that you think you will cook and put in the fridge. Your fridge is out. So you are now, whatever you cook and it's summer. So that means uh, limited, uh, limited life outside the fridge. So it's gonna hurt in that way. And that means your laptop is going to die after 24 hours. So there's no point. If you go to work and you need uh, electronic devices, they're not available. Vodacom, MTN, you pretty much all your creature comforts are gone. Netflix is gone. That is that is how ugly it can get without electricity. You will go pretty much to the Stone Age to a certain extent. 
what can can we expect significant relief from load shedding once Quebec refurbishment is complete? So I think Quebec probably reduces uh, load shedding by one stage. That is uh, that is the answer to that. Why is government demanding that we pay them when we go green? So the ESCOM challenges of have created a scenario or situation where those that are able to go green do that and they also happen to be the paying customers. So that means the customer base is declining, i.e. revenue for ESCOM has peaked. So they are trying to make to keep that uh, a customer baseline the same and at some point if you keep uh, going after those guys they can go off grid it may take them two more years, but they can easily go off grid and then you can't do anything to them. So, okay, uh, Desmond, go for it. Robert, so what you're basically saying is that the mines are starting to go off grid since the president increased it. I think is it a hundred megawatts? That, that, that they can produce. So are you saying because they're going off grid, the public, uh, the normal South Africans are being punished now for going green? So it's two parts. I'll give you ESCOM's side of the equation. So personally, I have a solar system. And in a way, I use a ESCOM as a backup. When the sun does not shine, I draw from the grid. And they are saying, well, that means you're using us as insurance. There is a price to be paid for having insurance. That is their argument. They are saying, Herbert, yes, nine o'clock to four o'clock. When the sun is out, for the most part, you don't need us. The sun goes down, your batteries start declining. 11 o'clock in the evening or 10 o'clock in the evening, you begin to draw from us. We don't think it's fair that you only draw from us when it's convenient and i.e. it's low volumes. And therefore we want you to pay for the price for having insurance. That's their argument. That is their reason for saying we need to adjust the tariffs to reflect this insurance. Okay. I hear you, but some of the mines during, uh, even if there's shutdowns or whatever load sharing, they are not fully dependent on ESCOM. So that is, okay, I don't want to be political and all those things, but that is not technically right because I was, this did a thing at Gold of City to say that at the time when load sharing was happening throughout South Africa, they didn't need to switch off. This is based on my studies and all those things. They told me they didn't. Even now when there's load shedding, they're fully loaded. They're not impacted by ESCOM. So currently the mining towns and some of them are also not experiencing load shedding or the mines themselves as much as South Africans are experiencing. And I'm asking these questions because the mines are starting to move away from the grid of ESCOM. And then what you are saying is that they're punishing you, but we, the big mines, which are the big spenders of, uh, we are the big payers, whatever, customers for ESCOM. So they're punishing now the uh, everyday South Africans, because that's what I'm getting from you. All right, well, thanks. 
Okay, so let's expand on that. Um, the last time, not the current time, we had stage six load shedding. The government had two options. Who are you going to prioritize? Do you reduce the productive capacity of the country, i.e. ask industry to switch off, or you have the citizens take the short end of the stick? And it was an active decision to actually protect the productive capacity of the country. We are a mining economy. So they decided we are going to keep the lights on for the miners and the balancing act, i.e. load shedding, will be on the residential side of things. That was an active decision made by the government. So that is why the miners are also, me and you, the mining communities will have lights on and we won't. It's because they are on the same line and that is the productive capacity of the country and so on and so on. Now I will add something onto that. In Europe going into this winter, if a similar decision is executed, consequences are dire. It is so cold that people die. So if Europe was to go, let's take Germany. If Germany was to say, well, we know we are going into a recession, times are tough, but we need to keep this economy going and switch off the households. It is so cold, people will die. So highly unlikely. On the other end, it looks more like it is in the, in the, it is the uh, it is industry that will take the short end of the stick this winter. And more so for us, this side now it's summer. They would rather have you spend more time in traffic than switch off the industry, which is pretty much the jobs and so on and so on. Oh, thanks, Robert. So another, this is just an observation. If you want to get a feel of how tough things are for ESCOM, if you have load shedding after 10 o'clock in the evening, you know ESCOM is struggling. Why is 10 o'clock uh, a critical time? It's because uh, we peak, say, from 6 to 9. That's when we are home, we are cooking, we are taking baths and so on and so on. Same thing in the morning, six to nine, getting ready for work, we are cooking, we are having coffee and so on and so on. So after 10 in normal circumstances, we normally used to produce more electricity than we need, i.e. we would eat it. You wouldn't switch off your coal station because if you switch it off, it takes a couple of days, sometimes weeks to ramp it up. It's not a light bulb switch where you just go on and off. But right now, if you are being put in into load shedding after 10, that means it is so bad that even during that time when most of us are asleep, we still need to build uh, reserves.
And if it's of interest for you guys, most people don't uh, pay attention, but uh, ESCOM actually is very religious in terms of publishing their financial statements publicly available, unlike other state-owned entities, but ESCOM, they, they don't hide it. If you go look at those financials, you'll be able to see what's happening. You will find the maintenance numbers there as well. All right, uh, I see we've got, okay, this is long. So we've got uh, Takudzwa has two questions. So question one, I hope you can, uh, you can also read it for yourself. Okay, clear in ESG initiatives here to stay, oil and gas remain core part of energy mix at least for foreseeable future question is how best can you support or, or having to conclude on the trade-off between ESG in the short term and long-term on the balance, uh, on balancing the use of oil and gas. But then again, the same time business going a uh, concern. Okay, so I'll try and uh, phrase it shorter. So we need to be green, but we know the energy mix. How do we evolve this, trying to balance all of those things? So one key trend that has been happening, and this is from a business uh, level, is if I am BHP or rather Anglo, and uh, I have an, Rather, let's use BHP. I've got oil assets. I've got pressure from my investors saying, you need to be green. I can just sell the oil assets and tomorrow I wake up without it. That actually happened. So the BHP sold their oil assets to Woodside. It's now called Woodside Energy. And there are certain investors that are saying, that's not what I want you to do. You are merely passing on the problem to someone. I want you to remedy this. So most of... Uh, your big oil majors, your big 